listening to the VC20 Podcast, a space for meaningful conversations and relevant teachings. Tonight, I'm going to be kicking off a new sermon series during the Lenten season called A Cruciformed Life. For those of you who may not know, Lent is a, is a season during the Christian calendar that is characterized by uh, generosity, by prayer, by repentance, by fasting, and by sacrifice. And it's a 40-day period in remembrance and commemoration of the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert and during the temptations of Satan before starting his public ministry. Now, Lent uh, start began last Wednesday with Ash, Ash Wednesday and culminates with Holy Week, Good Friday, and Easter. And because Lent is a journey that ultimately leads us to the cross, I want us to consider over the next few weeks, what would it look like for our lives to become cruciform? Cruciform, that word just simply means cross-shaped. What does it look like for the life of a Christian to be cross-shaped? You know, there's two planes to the cross. There's the vertical plane representing our love for God. There's the lateral plane, the horizontal plane representing our love for one another. This is the shape of the authentic Christian life. And I use that word authentic very deliberately. I think a cruciform life is is what distinguishes an authentic Christian life from a cultural Christian or from a, a, a Christian by name, label, by name and label only. The shape of the authentic Christian life is one of the cross. Today, I want to preach to you from a well-worn passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 1. Over the course of this series, we're going to camp out in the book of Philippians. Today, I want to focus on just one verse with you, and that's Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, to set some context for you very quickly, Paul is writing this leather, leather, letter and uh, leather to the church of Philippi while he's literally sitting in prison, like he's bound in chains, awaiting judgment, potential execution, and he's sitting here as an enemy of the state, right? So so when Paul talks about, uh, in verse 21, uh, to live as Christ, to die as gain, he's not using these terms metaphorically. For all he knows, death is in fact imminent. Paul had been preaching the gospel and testifying to the reality of the risen Lord. And, And in Rome, what this meant was, you know, crucifixion was was execution by Romans. It was, it was the, the Roman way of silencing any, any blasphemers, any enemies of the state. And so for Paul to go around saying Jesus has risen from the grave is like a, a now what to the Roman Empire because what he's saying is that their plans to silence and to muzzle and to, and to terminate Jesus clearly didn't work. And so Paul finds himself in chains. Verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. If you were to put any other, anything other than Christ into that formula, I would submit to you that it doesn't quite compute. Imagine it with me. For me to live is money. To die is gain? Not really. You can't take your money with you into eternity. For me to live is fame. I'm pretty sure there's no TikTok in eternity. For me to live is comfort. No matter how comfortable you become, death has a way of making all of us kind of uncomfortable. For me to live is success. To die is gain. It doesn't add up. If you were to put anything other than Christ into that formula, it just does not compute. Now, I believe you and I would do well to make it a regular practice of ours 
to contemplate our mortality. Statistics indicate that one out of every one person will die. Or to say it another way, you're going to die. I'm going to die. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. You don't see that verse on a coffee mug too often. Death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. In a very real sense, what you and I believe is literally a matter of life and death. So while I think there's tremendous value in considering what happens to us when we die, tonight I just want to focus on the first part of that verse, to live is Christ. And, and over the next few moments that we have together, I'm going to try my best to preach succinctly and quickly. I want us to consider what does, a, what does it look like to live for Christ? What is a life well lived? You could say this six-word this six sentence is a, is a beautiful summation of Paul's testimony. Paul, who was formerly Saul, had a, a, a collision encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. And he was beautifully interrupted by Jesus himself. And after being baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, he became preeminent among the apostles. And this six-word phrase, in a way, became Paul's life mission, his his telos, his, his very reason for existence. He says, to me, to live is Christ. To me, to live is Christ. Let's unpack that. Uh, I'm going to take it two words at a time. Paul begins by saying, to me. To me. For Paul, salvation was a deeply personal matter to me. It was based on his personal experience and encounter with the risen Lord. For Paul, this, is, this wasn't a secondhand story. This wasn't conjecture. This wasn't speculation. He had a head-on collision with the risen Jesus and had been person, personally and radically transformed by his love. And, it, and this is essentially what salvation is. It's a collision between God and his mercy and man and his helplessness. And when the two meet, the miracle that ensues is such that it can only be described as being born again. It's weird language. Jesus uh, tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, born, like I can't get back up there. What are, you, what are we talking about? Jesus is like, this is the best I got, Nick. You got to figure it out. Being born again means what you think it means. It, it, it means to be, be, be reborn, made new. It means everything about you is different now. I teach a lot of baptism classes here at the Vineyard. And one of the questions that we ask all of our baptismal candidates is, when did you become a Christian? When did you become a Christian? And I am astonished at the number of people who respond something like this. Well, I've been a Christian all my life. And I don't intend to, to beat them up or to be heavy handed. But the reality is, no, you haven't. None of us have. In fact, Scripture would say that you and I are born in sin and shaped and conceived in iniquity. Paul talks about us before Christ in very unflattering terms in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to what he says. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us. You, me, the person next to you, none of us are exempt. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature 
deserving of wrath. None of us are born a Christian. You must be born again to become a Christian. Am I talking to anybody tonight? None of us are born Christian. We must be born again. We are born we are born again by believing that although we are a sinner, Jesus loved us enough to die for us. And three days later, he walked out of his grave, defeating death so that you and I might have new life, everlasting life. And he's given us purpose in partnering with him to bring his kingdom. And this, my friends, is good news. It's the best news humanity has ever heard. This is the gospel. If you're in here tonight, with any awareness of your sin, this gospel should charm you. The gospel is, is a cup of cold water to the thirsty. It is a bountiful feast for the hungry. To the weary, it is rest in the Father's arms. This is good news. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon is my spiritual hero. He's the prince of preachers. He has such a beautiful way with words. Spurgeon says this, the gospel does not come to you asking something of you, but its hands are laden with gifts more precious than gold, which it freely bestows upon guilty people. It comes to us not as a reward for the obedient and deserving, but as a merciful boon for the disobedient and undeserving. It treats, it treats with us not upon the grounds of justice, but upon the terms of pure mercy. It asks no price and exacts no purchase. It comes as a benefactor, not as a judge. Salvation isn't something that you inherit, like your dad's sense of humor or your mama's good looks. Being raised in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian any more than being a Star Wars fan is going to make me a Jedi. You have to receive this gospel. You have to believe this gospel. You have to internalize this gospel. You have to understand this gospel as being your only hope. Another quote from John Calvin, he says, it will not be enough for any person to contemplate Christ as having died for the salvation of the world unless they have experiences the consequences of his death and is, and is enabled to claim it as their own. Have you claimed Christ? Have you? I'm asking you that seriously. Have you claimed Christ? Have you made him your own? Have you had that moment of surrender where you said of yourself, Jesus, I have nothing, but you have everything and you're willing to give it and I freely receive. Have you claimed Christ? Have you claimed his death as your own? Have you, with any awareness of your sin, ever thrusted yourself on his mercy and said, God, may your righteousness be counted to me because Lord knows I have none of my own. Have you claimed Christ? I know I've gotten a little loud. Let me dial it down and be as winsome as I can. Have you laid hold of the most precious gift that has ever been bestowed among men? Have you made Christ your own? Paul did. And so he begins by saying, to me. To me. He continues. It says, to me, to live. You know, there are a lot of notions floating around as to what the good life is. For some, living means to find a job that gives you a sense of purpose. And I believe that's a noble thing, but it can't be the only thing. For others, 
The good life is, is financial security. You don't care whether or not that job gives you purpose as long as it gives you a fat paycheck. Still others, you believe the good life is, um, is achieving some measure of fame. YouTube and social media have deceived us all into believing that we're one viral video away. One of the most common notions of the good life is this idea that living well is simply doing whatever makes me happy. And you're formed by this mentality to the point that you become a pleasure-seeking hedonist doing whatever feels good to you. In the movie Braveheart, William Wallace, I love, anybody seen Braveheart? All three hours of it? Love Braveheart. William Wallace is in chains, much like the Apostle Paul. And he's awaiting his execution for leading the Scottish rebellion against the king. And his, his lover comes in and she tries to convince him to pledge allegiance to the king and with hopes of a pardon or some kind of mercy or clemency. And she says this, she says, if you might only live. To which William Wallace famously responds, every man, every man dies. But not every man truly lives. Every man dies. Every person dies but not every person truly lives. To Wallace and to Paul, I didn't imagine making that comparison tonight, but <laughs> to William Wallace and to Paul, to live meant to serve something greater than yourself. We're going to get to what that something was here in a moment, but spoiler alert, it's Jesus. For Paul, to live meant serving something greater than himself. Let me summarize this point by saying it to you this way. You will never truly live so long as you live for yourself. You will never truly live so long as you choose to live for yourself. As far as Paul knows, death is imminent. He doesn't know whether he's going to make it out alive. Some theologians, in fact, speculate that, that here is where he met his end, that he was ultimately beheaded by the Romans. And he finds himself weighing which is better, to continue to live for Christ or to die and be with Christ. Just a quick aside, I don't think Paul and I could be friends. The guy seems to be unsufferable. Jesus, Jesus, it's all about Jesus. Paul, what do you think about life? Well, to live is Christ. That's cool, Paul. What do you think about death? Christ. All right, man, you want to go see a movie? Christ. All right, bro. We get it. But for Paul, Jesus was everything. This is in part what Paul means when he says to live is Christ. It means that his faith, genuine faith, informs everything that you and I do. It means from this sanctuary to your classroom to your bedroom, it all matters and nothing is off limits. Genuine faith says that Jesus, your dominion extends to every regard of my life. And I'm not going to live as though this stuff over here is sacred and this stuff over here is secular. I do everything, whatever I do, whether I eat or drink, I do it all for the glory of Jesus. But in weighing which is better, Paul clearly says in verse 23 that he wishes he could be with Jesus. He says being with Jesus would be the better option, but he'd rather live for the sake of loving and serving the people of God. He says, if it were up to me, I'd be with Jesus right now. But I know it's better for my life to be exhausted for the sake of others, for the sake of God's people. He says in verse 24, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. You see, Paul understood fundamentally that true 
and genuine faith. If you, if, you hadn't, if you haven't picked up on the point of this sermon, I'm trying to help you discern between the difference between a fake and phony and hollow and lifeless sort of faith and true and, gener- and, and genuine and regenerative and authentic sort of faith. Paul understands fundamentally that true and, genuinely, and genuine faith is ultimately proven and revealed by our love for one another. Jesus said as much in John chapter 13, uh, a couple of verses that we looked at last week. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says this, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus loved entirely. Jesus loved with all humility. Jesus loved sacrificially. Jesus loved beyond beyond the point of his own comfort. And he says, love like I have loved you. Verse 35, but by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, what I don't intend to do tonight, and please don't hear this from me. I'm not here trying to tell you that you're a fake Christian. I'm not trying to, to cause you as a result of this sermon to lose any measure of the assurance of your salvation. I'm not here to tell you that you aren't a real Christian or a good enough Christian, but I do want you to consider very honestly, very soberly, the reality that if you are lacking in love, you might be lacking in saving faith. These aren't my words. We must mean what we say when we are a Christian. Words have weight. Words matter. Otherwise, you have ugly and counterfeit forms of Christianity, like Christian nationalism, a movement marked by violence and racism and infested with all kinds of conspiratorial thinking. And when the world looks upon this, this, disgust, the, the, this disgusting, uh, marred image of true and biblical Christianity, they rightly and justifiably look upon it and say, I want, if, Christ, if this is what Christianity begets, then I want nothing to do with this mess. And neither should we. Neither should we want to be a part of any kind of Christianity that is barely anything more than a label or some kind of self-assumed title without any bearing on how we live and love. Are y'all hearing me tonight? James says very clearly, James, the brother of Jesus, I would take his word for it, that faith without works is no kind of faith at all. He says faith without works is dead. Now, what James is not trying to tell us here is that we are saved by our works. We are saved by grace through faith, not of your works, lest anyone should boast, Paul says. But what James is saying is that we know that we are saved by our works. In other words, the fruit that genuine faith produces is a life marked by love, sacrifice, joy, generosity, humility. This is how we know whether or not we have truly been born again. Let me say it to you this way. If I were to say to you that I am a rock climber, you can laugh. If I were to try to convince you, I were to argue with you until I was blue in the face, I am a rock climber. You might rightly respond to me, well, Shane, in order to be, to be a rock climber, you have to climb some rocks of which you have climbed zero. But I would come back like, no, you don't understand. I am a rock climber. I get all that, you know, the need to climb rocks and stuff, but hear me out, I'm a rock climber. You would say, no, 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 my friend, you are not a rock climber. You are a bit delusional. And so it is true with our faith. We can't just say it. We have to live it. Paul says, to me, to live. To me, to live. And then he concludes, to live is Christ. 
I'm closing here if Alberto and Napsai, you guys want to get ready. I've asked some of you this question a little bit earlier in this sermon, but it's worth considering as we close together. Who or what are you living for? What are, you, are, you, are you living primarily first concerned with you, your comfort, your fame, your success, your glory? That's a life too small for you. God in His grace has so much more for you, VC20. The Lord says in Isaiah 43, Bring me my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory. Here's a revelation where if you would catch it, would bring such liberty and freedom and, and excitement and adventure to your life. You ready for it? Here it is. Life is not primarily about you. That's not to say that the Father isn't enamored with you, that all His love and delight isn't wrapped up in you. It absolutely is. Neither is that to say that your life is inconsequential. I believe that you are called and created with purpose and on purpose. But that is to say, if you live your life exclusively or even primarily with yourself in mind, that's a life too small for you. That's a life that isn't befitting the people of God. There's a band called the Fleet Foxes. Some of y'all are shocked to hear me mention them in a sermon. Elise was into them. I was into Elise. It was a weird time in my life. They have a song called Helplessness Blues, and the lyrics to this song have stuck with me ever since I heard it. The lead singer, Robin Pecknold, he wrote this. He says, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct amongst snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. But now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means we play our part for the family of God, leveraging our lives for His glory and not our own. Faith in Jesus, genuine, true, authentic, regenerating faith in Jesus should reorient all of our pursuits. It should relocate all of our affections. It should compel us to forsake our individualism and take our place among the communion of saints who live for His glory and not our own. The scandalous claim of Christianity is that it takes losing your life in order to truly find it. To say life should be all about Jesus is, is counterintuitive to us. It rubs up against our, our, our cultural sensibilities because we live in a culture that has convinced us that you shouldn't commit to anything. Our, our generation, if I could use that word, knows nothing of loyalty because we have been conditioned to believe that to choose and to commit to one thing means that we're missing out on all these other things. So as a consequence, God knows we can't commit to a church. We can't commit to a small group. We definitely can't commit to a spouse. But in committing to Jesus, in committing to Jesus, you find a life that's truly worth living. You live a life that in fact outlasts you. A life lived only for yourself is one that gets buried with you. But a life lived for the glory of Jesus is one that resounds for all of eternity. 
this phrase to live as Christ. And I'm close. I had y'all come up a little too early, but you can actually go ahead and start playing now. Let's do this together. This phrase to live as Christ, to die as gain, it's it's rendered well here in the English, but in the Greek, it is it is so full of poetry and and rhythm and alliteration. I'm going to try my best to, to say this for you, Paul. He's such a wordsmith, y'all. He says, tozen Christos, to apothenin kirdon. This isn't the language of begrudging obedience. It's actually poetic in the Greek. It's poetry. This isn't the language of, of obligation. This isn't the language of a list of oughts. Paul can't get over himself here. This is the language of romance. This is the language of lovers whispering in each other's ear. Paul isn't saying that I've lost my life and now I don't know where to find it. Paul is saying I've lost my life for the sake of love. He says, now I live for him. If I die, I'll be with him. In my suffering, I'm being made more like him. It is all about him. Paul says, I will gladly live and die for the God who lived and died for me. I'm going to end with one more quote from C.S. Lewis. I think this is a beautiful summation of tonight's message. He says, the principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give yourself up and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. These words shouldn't enter our ears easy. That hurts. Die to my my ambitions, Paul. I got dreams. I want to be somebody. I want to do something with my life, Paul. What are you talking about? He says, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Hold nothing back. Nothing that you have not given will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Let's look to Christ tonight. Bow your head and pray with me as we close. Father, would you beautify your church tonight? Would you purify your church? Would you give us the strength and courage to lay aside a false and phony, lifeless kind of faith? The faith that we feel like we've inherited or the faith that we have assumed upon ourselves. Father, give us the grace and the courage to lay that down and to step into true, authentic, life-giving, regenerating, wound-healing, bondage-breaking kind of faith, world-changing kind of faith, the kind of faith that liberates the captive, gives sight to the blind, 
heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Would you do that in us and through us? Father, for those in here under the sound of my voice who would say, I haven't had that head-on collision where I haven't with an awareness of my sin brought it before the cross, there it being nailed in the form of the person of Christ. I don't know what it is to walk in newness of life. I haven't laid hold of Christ's death and resurrection. If that's you tonight, this is your moment. Your sin is great, but His grace is sufficient. Come to Jesus. It's never too late. Father, make us a community of living faith. We don't just want to talk about it, God. We want to be about it. We look to you, God. Forgive us for the innumerable times and ways we have been looking to ourselves, looking out for ourselves, Father. We look to you. We're done. We're tired. We're giving up on living for ourselves, Father. We want, to, we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to live for your glory. We want to love for your glory. We want to serve for your glory. We want to worship for your glory. We want to do our schoolwork for your glory. We want to be good spouses for your glory. We want to be good students and sons and daughters for your glory. Burn us up tonight, Father, as a living sacrifice. We hold nothing back. Amen. If you're in here tonight and you, you need a touch from the Father, you want to ex experience His love, or you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I want you to stand to your feet right now all over this place. Just make this prayer your own. Say, come Holy Spirit. We're not in a hurry. We'll just wait on God to do what only He can do. In your own heart, in your own words, make your request known to the Father right now. Father, I need your love. I need your grace. Make me whole. I need your mercy. I need you to remind me that I am a son or a daughter. Father, let the winds of your spirit blow in the name of Jesus. The Father's pouring out His love all over this room. Just receive it. More, Lord. More, Lord. Lay hold of it tonight. Claim it. Take it as your own. Wrestle with God.
More, Lord, more love, more grace, more power. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Father, it's by your Spirit that we call, that we cry, that we come to know you as our Abba. If you're feeling a touch, if you're feeling tears, if you're feeling a warmth about your body, that's the Father's love. That's the Holy Spirit. Just receive more, Lord. More, Lord. Just continue to press in and get all God has for you tonight as we sing this song out together. Thank you for listening to the BC20 podcast. Make sure to subscribe for more sermons and intentional conversations. You can also check us out online at bc20.com.